Blog Talk Radio. Radio, and I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit and our producer, Marty Oakley. They afford us the opportunity to talk about topics that are uncomfortable and many do not want you to know, because it just might change your opinion about what you've always believed, and you might decide to take a different path than the so-called compassionate and free hospice. This show was created to bring awareness to people about the dangers of enrolling in hospice without knowing the facts and not the fiction that many hospice staff will tell you. It's about valuing the sanctity of all life from conception through a natural death. Not all hospices have gone rogue and hastened death, but most do. The fact is, that hospice services were meant to be compassionate and helpful in the dying process at the end of someone's life. They were to minimize pain for the actively dying, not to drug a person into unconsciousness until they cannot think, talk, eat, drink, or swallow, and ultimately hasten their death with drugs and dehydration. A horrible way to have the last chapter of your life executed, and yet, This is what is happening across the country. It was intended for people who had diseases that could no longer be treated with medication. Today, people who can be treated with medication, who are not terminal, and could live longer than the death sentence they receive, are enrolled. The criteria also allows for people with dementia, or who go to the hospital too often, or who can't take physical care of themselves. No one can predict when someone will die unless you hasten the process. Hospice staff are literally trained to manipulate. Michelle Young Doers provides details of this and other fallacies in her book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. She was a hospice respiratory therapist and saw the quotas and the treatment of hospital and hospice patients Firsthand, I encourage you to check this book out for yourself. Another site, hospicepatients.org, Ron Panzer, who was also a previous hospice nurse, shares countless stories about what hospice is now and other vital information. One of his books, titled Stealth Euthanasia, Healthcare Tyranny, can be downloaded from that site. Another resourceful site is halovoice.org, which has a 24 by 7 helpline. If you have questions while your loved one is in the facility or you plan to put them there, you can ask them questions. That number is 
H-A-L-O. That's H-A-L-O. They also have sample medical power of attorney per state. These are very good sites for you to check out if you are not already aware of the dangers of enrolling in hospice. The fact is that after they give you the opioids and the antipsychotic drugs, they are now dying, but not from a disease, but from an overdose of the drug, starvation, and dehydration. If you gave these drugs to a young, healthy person, they too would die from the combination of drugs, frequency, duration, starvation, and dehydration. So how is it not murder? It is. This week, CDC quietly updated COVID numbers and stated only 9,200 people died from COVID alone and that the others had serious illnesses. I'd like to add my thoughts to that. If toxicology reports were done on many of these people, especially those in the nursing homes, the truth would further reveal they had morphine, Ativan, Haldol, fentanyl, or Seroquel in their blood, which hastened their death. If you recall, hospice was called in to help because they are familiar with the dying process. Families were not allowed to be with their loved ones, so who knows what really happened behind closed doors. I'll tell you this, we sat with my mom, and I know what happened behind those doors because I, as well as my guest and others, have seen the effects of the drugging and the horrible deaths after hospice staff gave their compassionate care. People dying in hospice settings also have large quantities of these drugs in their system when they die. Everyone needs to wake up and see that these things are not just happening. They are planned events, and the elderly and disabled are being called because they cost too much money and they're just too much trouble. Previous Betrayed by Hospice shows have gone into much more detail about the how and the why and the drugs, but due to tonight's special content, I need to move along. Tonight, our guest is Jane St. Clair, who is an author who grew up in Chicago and worked her way through college as a factory welder, beauty shop attendant, commercial sign maker, and a cocktail waitress. After earning a journalism degree, she worked in Chicago's ghettos as a welfare caseworker. Jane has written many short stories that appeared in literary magazines in several poems and published over 50 children's stories and 21 children's books. Walk Me to Midnight is her first novel. It takes a strong stand against assisted suicide. She has been a freelance writer for over 10 years, writing articles on many topics, including bullying, psychology, etiquette, attention deficit disorder, Asperger's syndrome, as well as euthanasia, morphine, and fentanyl. She has written press releases, advertisements, and political speeches and covered national conventions. Her series on financial literacy, The Money Express, won several national awards. I'd say she's quite the acclaimed author, and I'm honored to have her on our show tonight. 
Jane's father, mother, and sister all died of cancer in hospice settings. Sitting with hospice nurses, with family members, sometimes for months, Jane saw for herself what she depicts in her suspense novel, Walk Me to Midnight. Jane had a good experience with hospice, as she will tell us later, but clearly most of us have witnessed the dark side of hospice. She wrote a short story titled Mute, which is how I met her, and this is what I want to focus on tonight. Imaged, sorry, Image published this fictional story on their website, and Jane and Image have approved me sharing it with you tonight. Mute is a fictional short story about a clown working in a hospice facility, and it depicts the mute the clown's relationship with one of the patients. I was so moved by this story that I had to find Jane, and she agreed to come on the show. The story has so many parallels with many of our prior guests and what I have seen with hospice, and I'd like to discuss those after the story. Jane has requested that I read it to you, and she's standing by to talk afterwards. So with this, I'd like to share Jane's story, Mute, and I've only removed a few parts of it for the, the essence of our time that we have. I hope you will enjoy it, and it will affect you as it did me. It is a bittersweet story. Mute by Jane St. Clair. It was my idea to volunteer as a clown, but it was my therapist who suggested that I work as a mute because I am so talkative. That way, I would have to use my face and props to communicate instead of words. It wasn't as hard as I thought it'd be, for I quickly got good with my rubber chicken. I'd squeeze him and make him lay an egg, or I'd hang him from a blue cord and say, chicken cordon bleu, but I am digressing, as I always do, because I talk too much. Since I wanted to work in a children's hospital, I needed a non-threatening clown look. I decided my face would be white with blue and red circle eyes, and I'd have a removable red ball nose that I'd pull up and down as a communication prop. I'd wear a yellow, wild yellow wig with beribboned pigtails and a Swiss Alps dress with a pinafore apron, striped tights, and oversized Mary Jane shoes. I'd carry a huge purse that lights up when I open it and use it for props like bubbles and balloons. I named her Gretchen Von Klucker, and she can do a chicken dance as well as Korean Gangnam Style. After I graduated from Clown College, I phoned every children's hospital in Cincinnati and then every children's ward in an ordinary hospital, but they all turned me down because surprisingly large number of children are afraid of clowns, especially since they're sick and away from home. I finally volunteered at an adult hospice named Maison de la Lemire, the only place that would take me. The hospice where I volunteered was a small, nondescript building that had been a warehouse for drugstore supplies. A distracted middle-aged nurse named Molly Crispin ran the operation, and when I showed up for my first day, she had forgotten I was coming, and she wasn't sure why I was there. I explained that I was there to help people, 
that I could be therapeutic or entertaining or just a friend holding their hand and that a clown could spread all kind of joy in a setting like this one. I'm not sure who'd want to be friends with you, she said, looking me up and down and seeing an oversized woman dressed like a gigantic Swiss shepherdess. Then her phone rang, and she shoved me out of her office, saying, Go visit someone. It's okay. You passed your criminals, and we've got your fingerprints. The cubicles where assistants once sat behind computers as they counted pampers and cough drops had been converted into private rooms for dying patients. The room had fake cheerfulness in it as they were painted kindergarten colors and decorated with inspirational pictures of rainbow waterfalls in Yosemite or sunsets over Grand Canyon. The decor reminded me of death scenes in Soylent Green where Edward G. Robinson is listening to Beethoven and watching movies of Meadows during an assisted suicide. I wandered down the hall, tiptoeing as best I could on two-foot-long shoes. I peered into rooms and saw that most patients were sleeping like drugged-out zombies hooked up to morphine drips and hydrators. Most were breathing loudly with occasional snorts, catches, and mouth-dropping snores. I kept searching for a lighted television set, open eyes, any sign of life. I finally entered the room of one, Mrs. Lydia Whitney, who was very much alive and awake. In fact, when I opened her door, she screeched, Oh, my God, I have died and gone to hell, and the devil has sent a demon to greet me. She screamed a ladylike scream, sat up straight in her bed, and yelled at me to leave at once. She had an upper-class New England accent and a haughty air like an ancient Catherine Hepburn. She sounded as if she thought no one was worthy of her except people like the Hiltons and Lady Astors, and everyone else, especially clowns, was just the help. I made a sad face, clucked my horn, and flopped my way out. As I walked down the hall, I must have managed to look dejected despite the smile painted with the two-inch wide red lipstick, for a small elderly woman touched my arm and said, Don't take it personal. She's unkind to everyone. Is that right? I asked. She's not close to Jesus, she whispered, and it's hard for those who aren't close to Jesus when they die. I'm praying for Miss Whitney. I even did a novena to St. Michael for her. Death is St. Michael's cause, you know. She said her name was Mary Margaret Mapes, that she felt God had called her to do hospice work, and that she was glad to know me as she was new at Maison de la Lemure herself. Don't worry, my dear, she told me. Patients are always coming and going, and we're bound to get some who like clowns. I'll pray that we do, my dear. That tooted my entire first day as a volunteer. Molly Crispin waved at me on my way out and said, uh, Better luck next time. I went back to Maison the next day, and again, Molly Crispin was distracted, this time in conference with two men standing around a stretcher that had a life-size rubber bag on it, like an overly sturdy dry cleaner's bag that zipped lengthwise. I wondered if Lydia Whitney had expired, because in a strange way, I felt attached to her. The hospice doctor was on duty that morning. He did not visit any patients, but just looked at charts instead. When I asked one of the LPNs about that, she said, 
it's very loose around here. We don't take vitals, and we don't wake up patients for meds. It's all about pain relief and palliative care. So the nurses do all the work, and the doctors swoop down every now and then and take all the credit and all the money. I was not listening. I was watching a pallet with a body in a zipped-up rubber bag rolling by. I asked if that was Lydia Whitney, and the LPN said, Oh, Lord, no, that's Mr. Yeagerchave, and he's the work of Handy Andy. I asked what that meant, and she explained that insurance companies can only pay for six months in hospice, so sometimes they send a closer like Handy Andy. A closer is someone who flies down from Chicago to hurry things along, if you get my drift. That was disturbing to me, but she assured me that that's the way it worked everywhere and not just here, and that not only would I get used to it, I'd come to see that Handy Andy was Mason's only own special angel of light. In the next few months, I learned not only about Handy Andy, but many other things about hospice, such as people tend to die around 4 in the morning, though they can rally in order to live long enough to see a relative or a friend. More people die right before or after major holidays. Women commonly die a day or so before their birthday, so they appear a year younger in their obituaries. People tend to die on Friday or Saturday nights, Sunday nights, probably because of years of living within the rhythms of the work week. One afternoon, I could not resist going into Lydia Whitney's room again, so I tapped lightly on her door and clucked my chicken horn a few times. What the hell do you want? She roared at me. I waved a little non-threatening wave with my pink polka dot gloved hand. You don't speak? She asked. I shook my head. Thank God. I thought I'd be captive to the pseudo-cheerful prattle of another obnoxious do-gooder. I am waiting for a call from my attorney. You may leave now. I turned to leave. It's an extremely important call, she called out. Somehow I interpreted that to mean she wanted me to come back, and my therapist thought so too. Again, finding more analogies between Miss Whitney's queenly coldness and my mother's demeanor and constant criticisms. The next day, I went to Miss Whitney's room again and waved another small, non-threatening wave from the doorway. This time, she did not object when I came in. You are ludicrous, she said. I nodded. Who are you supposed to be, Spirey's Heidi afflicted with gigantism disorder? I pulled out a sign from my purse that read, My name is Gretchen Von Klucker. What nonsense, Miss Whitney grumbled. Put that away at once. I started to make a balloon dash ham for her, but she declined. Please spare me any infantile torture. I am not a child. I am being held here against my will, and I intend to escape as soon as possible. I tilted my head in a quizzical way and sat down next to her so she could explain her situation. My brother Garrison is trying to kill me, Miss Whitney said. He's always been jealous of me because my father was a Whitney and his father was a no-good sot. Mother married five times, you see. Garrison's father was her only mistake. She had no idea that the cad had defunded his trust fund before their wedding and that he would try to spend everything she had once they were married 
including the Whitney inheritance. My eyes grew wide and compassionate. So, you ask, how can it be that I am here where I am not sick, much less dying? That murderous beings at that loathsome place are drugging me to death? You are naive. You do not understand the ways of the rich. Her phone rang. She reached for it and shooed me out. That night, as I was leaving, I approached Molly Crispin and told her what Lydia Whitney had told me about not being sick and being held at Maison against her will. Oh, my God, she's crazy, she replied. Miss Whitney has stage forged cancer. Her last MRI showed dots on her brain, liver, and pancreas. All of us wonder how she can still be alive. Don't listen to a word she says. Yet these things nagged at me, and the next day when I saw my therapist, I told her Miss Whitney's story. She's delusional, she said. It's very common for psychotics to identify with celebrities or prominent families. I've been practicing over 20 years, and I've met two Johnny Depps, three Angelina Jolies, two siblings of Obama, and one Rockefeller, but never a Whitney. The next day, I went back to the hospice with a newly somber sense of reality, and there I found Miss Whitney causing a terrible commotion in her room. Molly Crispin, two LPNs, and one male orderly were struggling to hold her down as she thrashed and writhed. A tall, elderly, well-dressed man was standing in a corner, tapping his foot in irritation. Get out of here, Garrison, Miss Whitney roared at him. Get out. He refused to budge. The four medical professionals were able to strap her to a bed, turn her on her side, and stick a syringe into her naked buttock. It felt invasive of her privacy to watch, so I walked into the coffee break room down the hall where the janitor was mopping the floor. Don't be upset. It's just Miss Whitney. She gives everybody a hard time, Maritza said. It's sad to watch, I said. She's not only dying, she's crazy as a loon and mean as a snake. The janitor lifted a chicken kitchen chair to wash underneath it. Her brother's trying to help her, and she's mean to him. He's come all the way from Connecticut, and for what? So she can be mean to him? She was born mean. When is Mary Margaret Mapes coming back, I ask? She quit, Maritza said, swishing the mop's long gray witch-like lockets under the table. She say, I can't work here because of Mr. Handy Andy. It's against God to kill people. I can't work in a place where Handy Andy kills people. She make almost as much trouble like Miss Whitney, the janitor went on. Miss Mapes was so mad, and she makes so much noise. We're better off without the both of them. Nothing but trouble. I left the coffee break room and saw Miss Whitney's brother conferring with Molly Crispin at the front desk. If my sister were in her right mind, Garrison was saying, she would want it done immediately. She would not wish to continue without her dignity. So you'll sign off for her, Molly Crispin said. Garrison looked up and saw that I was eavesdropping, so I nodded and hurried by. I walked around in search of someone to cheer up, someone who needed me. The light in the hallway was that ominous slant of late autumn afternoon, and my shadow was long and distorted and bizarre, another piece of me that did not belong to me. I felt heavy and uneasy. The hospice smelled of antiseptic, 
pine saw and fear. I felt like screaming, but then Gretchen von Klucker is mute. The following day, I saw Mrs. Whitney. She was so drugged that she was slurring her words and barely making sense, and yet she made it clear she wanted me to stay. I sat down next to her in, on her bed, and she talked about her past. My father loved me, even though there were questions about my ancestry, she told me. You see, I inherited my good looks from my mother's lover, Alexander Corey, the film star. And yet, father loved me anyway and treated me as I were his. I was the only child until Garrison came along. Her old eyes were yellow and rimmy, and her usual hardness and haughty cynicism had split open like a dark veil breaking apart. She was the way I wished my mother could be with me, just once. Father took me on a safari with him to Kenya, she said. It was just the two of us, and we went to Nairobi, and then we saw the Ambeshla Wildlife Park with its view of Kilimanjaro, and we saw the hippopotamus. We stayed at the treetops, you know, where the royal family stays sometimes. She pulled herself up straighter and said, Get up, clown. Get up and go into the third drawer. There. No, no, not that one. The third drawer. The one I'm pointing to. Find the mahogany photo album. The leather mahogany. No, the other one. I said mahogany, not caramel. I pulled out the correct album and looked at her for more guidance, not wanting to be yelled at again. Bring it here, clown. She was too weak to open it herself, so I did it for her. The album contained photographs, most of them professionally shot, of the trip to Africa, from the style of the clothing and the automobiles. I guess the pictures were from the late 1930s. I saw one photo of a girl, about 10 years old, riding an elephant, impeccably dressed, a man with a carefully groomed gray beard and tailored leather safari clothes was sitting behind her, holding her waist. That's it, Miss Whitney said. That is father and I that summer in Kenya. It was very hot that day, and I got a terrible sunburn, and my father rubbed me with balm. The balm was cool, and I remember how he took care of me. At that moment, I felt a kinship to her, another little girl longing for touch and tenderness. So it seemed that she had morphed into both me and my mother at the same time. Turn the page, clown. See that one? That is father and I in front of the Treetops Hotel. It was such an odd place with all the disconnected angles. It rained that day, and it rained so hard we stayed inside. Father left me to my own devices, and he made me feel grown up and self-reliant. I read Nancy Drew in a rattan chair shaped like a shell. That night, I fell asleep to the sound of the native drums. You see my heritage, don't you, clown? You see how my father loved me? Now, now put the book away and leave me alone. I'm tired. I did as I was told, and then I went to tell Molly Crispin about the photograph album. She was herself, her usual distracted self, and dismissed my concerns as beneath her overactive agenda. She may have come from a rich family, she said, but she's a pauper now, just like the rest of us. She's also a royal pain in the ass. Excuse me, I have a funeral to arrange. I could not help from going back to Maison the next morning to visit Miss Whitney again. Uncharacteristically, she was crying. They've taken away my telephone, she said. They're drugging me to death with poison, and now they've taken away my telephone. 
I reached into my purse and pulled out my cell phone. I don't use those little contraptions, she complained. You'll have to dial the number for me. I did as I was told, then handed her the phone. She grew annoyed when she could not figure out how to speak into it. Someone must have answered, however, for she said, Charles Carlock, please, Linda Whitney on the line. Yes, Charles, yes. I'm being drugged, and I cannot think. Garrison is having me murdered. I want to execute the document we talked about as soon as possible. Yes, yes, as soon as possible, Charles. Her face grew more peaceful as she handed my phone back. My lawyer will come this afternoon, she said. You can leave now, clown. I'm tired, and I must rest. Charles Carlock, my attorney, will be here this afternoon. That night, I could not sleep. I had an ominous feeling about Miss Whitney. I drove to Maison de la Lemire the first thing the next morning. I left my car in the frozen, still-colored tundra of a parking lot as I walked toward the building. I noticed a limousine waiting at the entrance, a man wearing a caramel coat and carrying a small leather satchel was walking toward the vehicle. I could not make out his features, for his scarf covered his face. The driver opened the limousine door for him, and they drove away. The interior of the hospice was quieter and grayer than usual. The janitor was mopping the front entrance, where the man had left scuffs on the linoleum tiles, and she seemed to be the only person in the building. Maritza, I said, I saw a limousine outside. That's handy, Andy, she said. They always send him first class, everything first class. He has such a dirty job, so they give him the best car, the best seat on the best airplane. Hell, he gets the best fork wherever he eats. I rushed past her to Miss Whitney's room. I did not bother to sign in at the front desk or change into my clown costume. I pushed open the door and found her still and barely conscious. She usually wore a long sleeve flannel gown, but that day she was wearing a blue hospital dress. I could see now that her arms were emaciated and covered with black splotches of death. Her mouth was parched and hanging open. I covered her shivering body with a blanket. I sat next to her. I took her hand in mine. Her hand was cold and limp. Miss Whitney, I whispered, it's me. It's the clown. I'm with you, Miss Whitney. She struggled to form a word that sounded like name. My name? My real name is Eleanor Adams. I'm with you, Miss Whitney. I'm here with you. I'll stay with you. Adams, a good family, she answered in a voice I could hardly hear. Don't try to talk, Miss Whitney. Would you like for me to pray for you? I said, our father, one of the few prayers I knew, and she breathed more slowly and calmly while I chanted the familiar words, In the middle of my second rendition, she said, You've come, O Father, O Father. Once, Mary Margaret Mapes told me that they always send someone you love to greet you when you die, and you usually find yourself in a garden with them. It's her father, I thought to myself. Thank you, Father. Thank you for coming and helping us now. Miss Whitney stopped breathing. I felt her heart. I felt nothing. This is it, apparently. I went down the hall to find Molly Crispin. We returned to Miss Whitney's room, and she touched the body, listening with a stethoscope and such. Then she confirmed the obvious. 
she excused herself to make arrangements, and I stayed with Miss Whitney until the stretcher crew came. Then I went into the coffee break room to compose myself. Maritza, always eager for the latest gossip, came in and sat next to me. Miss Whitney, she die, eh? She said. I nodded. Good. She was paying the ass. I shook my head. What's with you, she asked. You work in a place like this and people going to die. What else do you expect from a place like this? That's what this place is, for Christ's sakes. I walked out without speaking. I took out my phone in the parking lot and scheduled an emergency session with my therapist. I told her about the photograph album and the telephone call Miss Whitney made to her attorney. There was evidence in my mind that she was telling the truth about her family. Too many puzzle pieces are missing, my therapist said. You have to accept that and let it go. You can never really know another person. We're not here to analyze Miss Whitney, and besides, she's gone now. Later, I found the number of Miss Whitney's lawyer stored in my cell phone. Charles Carlock, I said when I reached him, I just want to tell you that your client, Lydia Whitney, died. Oh, I know, he answered. It took all of two minutes for her brother's lawyer to inform me of that, poor old soul. She suffered a long time, chemotherapy and radiation and all that. She really had cancer, I asked. She wasn't being drugged to death? Uh, She may have been crazy, he replied, but she really did have cancer. I think they sent someone here to end her life, I said. Garrison, the attorney replied, her half-brother. He's the one who arranged for it. He had medical power of attorney, but I'm still the executor of her estate. (laughs) She outsmarted the SOB. We signed her new will yesterday, and she left everything to aid for Africa, with one exception. She left a small bequest and some personal things to a hospital clown who had been visiting her. Mr. Carlock, I said, did you say clown? Yes. Um, She and the clown cared about each other, and the clown was working behind the scenes on her behalf. Miss Whitney particularly wanted the clown to have everything in her room, her albums, jewelry, things like that. She said she knew the clown would treasure them. Mr. Carlock, I'm that clown. Is that right? I think you should take the things you want then, and you better do it fast before Garrison grabs them. I'll make sure you get your check later. But I didn't help her, I cried. It was wrong. What happened? I I didn't speak up for her. Well, you never know, the lawyer sighed. I didn't speak up for her. I should have, but I didn't. She said you were like a daughter to her, he told me. Obviously, you loved each other. Well, you just never know. You just never know what you are to someone else. And that is the end of Mute. I hope that I did the story justice. I hope that you felt touched by it like I did. It just, to me, was an amazing story of tenderness. Um, A couple of the parallels that I wanted to bring out. One of the days that the clown shows up, the doctor is there looking at the records, but he never visits the patients. He doesn't take vitals. They're there for palliative 
pain management, nothing more. The nurse states that, you know, they come in at the last minute and take all the glory and, and get the money for that. Now, this is a fictional short story, but I will tell you that a lot of what Jane St. Clair has put into this are true things. Hospice doctors do not see patients every day, and they do rely on the nurse's input. It's about the pain and the palliative care. My mom's medical record states that the doctor saw her daily, but he did not. We were with her 24-7 the last week. He was not there. Handy Andy, which they refer to as the closer, some of you may be aware, some may not. There was a CEO, Bradley Harris, at Novus Hospice in Frisco, Texas, where people were enrolled and murdered to make, more, make money. Harris sent nurses texts to find someone and make them go bye-bye. Nurse Love, uh, ironically her name was Love, would brag that patients would always die before her shift ended. She would say she turns them on their left side and gives them a, a little extra dose. There appeared to be pride taken in being so callous in what she does. They referred to Handy Andy as the angel of light. Many nurses are considered themselves angels of mercy. I believe they are evil and heartless to be able to murder people with no remorse. The story states many die in the night when loved ones are not in the room. They will tell you that they died peacefully in their sleep. I watched my precious mom die as others have, and there is nothing peaceful about the death given in hospice in most cases. Miss Whitney was held down and injected with drugs while Garrison and Miss Crispin were in the room. There have been articles where loved ones are held down by their own family members and injected with legal drugs, and the family member says they wouldn't want to live this way without dignity, and they approve of this. It's easy for someone to utter those words, but is that really what the loved one wanted? It was clear that it's not what Miss Whitney wanted. Miss Whitney's brother Garrison wanted to be rid of her so he could receive the Whitney fortune. Many children or siblings are ready for their loved ones to die so they can inherit their funds or not be bothered with taking care of them. As some of my guests have stated, they tried, in spite of the other siblings, to save their parent to no avail. Or in some cases, it is the spouse that wants them gone, and a child fights for the other parent. Mary Margaret, the new nurse, could not handle what was happening, and she quit. Sometimes nurses realize what is going on and want no part of this murder, and they quit. Ron Panzer, Michelle Young Dewars, a previous guest who came on my show anonymously and remained where she was because she is helping patients by giving nutrients and not drugging them whenever she can get by with not doing that. Miss Whitney's ability to communicate was taken away after the clown told the nurse about her reaching out to the outside. Fortunately, the clown shared her phone in this fictional story. Thinking about the people in nursing homes with the current COVID where their communication has been cut off, they can't see their loved ones, and their loved ones have no idea what is happening. There is no one there to help, no one to give support. Another case, real case of this, one of my previous guests, Lisa Papania, 
that was trying to save her dad, and he told her whenever she questions the staff or upsets the staff, they take it out on him, and he's afraid. So he doesn't want her to say anything bad. She resorts to calling 911 with a fictitious name so that he is not punished for her action. After her dad was murdered, she was served with an arrest warrant for making that call and giving a fake name. Fortunately, the judge saw through the horrific situation and dismissed the charges and even stated he hoped his daughter would have cared for him the way that Lisa cared for her dad. The janitor's comment, people going to die, that's what everyone thinks. When you enroll someone to hospice, And the fact is, it is a premature death in most cases. It doesn't mean that humanity should die also. There is a callous attitude about the elderly. They die. So what? They were old. It's okay. It's not okay. Medical power of attorney. Garrison had medical power of attorney. Be careful who you assign your power of attorney Make sure they have your best interest in mind and will follow through with your wishes. And if you're able to make your own decisions, as Miss Whitney was, do not give that permission to someone else. Be clear that as long as I can make my own decisions, I will do so. Signing a do not resuscitate DNR is extremely dangerous. If you have one, you might want to reconsider and tear it up. The same thing with a living will or a pulsed that is given to you at a hospital prior to surgery. Halovoice.org has excellent information on this and samples per state. You might want to check into that. So the story, Mute, to me, had so much meaning. It was tender. I, The first few times that I read it, I admit that I cried. It was just so genuine, and there was so much heart there that the clown felt for Miss Whitney, and you could tell that the love was reciprocated even in Miss Whitney's odd way of doing it. So, Jane, you wrote a marvelous story. I'm Thank you. just touched by it. So I'd like to ask you, what, why did you write the story? What was behind it? And talk to us about it. Well, you know, I, I guess I kind of... I wrote it as more of a science fiction of something that would happen in the future if we kept up the way we're going, you know, and, you know, allowing euthanasia and assisted suicide, especially among the elderly. And I had no idea that it was already happening. You know, I heard your story and other people's stories, and it's it's incredible to me because I, I thought of it as a work, a work of fiction. And um where the character came from, I was a caseworker for the Cook County Public Aid in Chicago, and I had about 300 people on my caseload, mostly young families with children. But I did have this old woman on my caseload. Um, her name is a household name. It's a household word. They were, you know, it's like Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation. They had a foundation. They're a very well-known family, and she claimed to be a member of it. And I would go over there, and like Miss Whitney, she would kind of order me around, you know, like caseworker, it's time for tea, and caseworker, get my scrapbook. And I kind of got to know her, and um, 
the pictures in the scrapbook seemed authentic. Like maybe she really was a member of this family. And people who had had the case before I did, you know, assumed she was crazy like the people in the story. But as it turned out, we wrote a letter to her family through their foundation, and she was a short tail relative, and it had a happy ending. They did take care of her. So that was that was lovely. And um, that's, that's basically where I got Miss Whitney. And I wanted the clown to be mute because I think the word mute is very important when you talk about these issues. You know, are we going to be mute? Are we going to talk about it? Are we going to speak up when we see something like this? Um, you know, I think that that's what I was trying to say, and that's why I called the story mute. Wow. That's awesome. I did not know that. That's but, That's a very good analogy. You know, well, I think that's why the clown felt so bad in the end because she 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 felt like she should have spoken up, and I think that we need to speak up about these things, you know, when we see them and when it happens to our loved ones, and um, you know, do what's necessary, make noise, sue people, make sure it doesn't happen to someone else. Uh, you're absolutely right, and if people don't know, they cannot prepare themselves for the shock, and I think that's what's very hard for my previous guest because none of them had any awareness that this could happen, and you are in such shock when it's happening, you can't think correctly, and you don't know what to do to stop it. And that's Well, that's right, and is. these are authority figures, these doctors and nurses, and, you know, they're um, kind of, as you alluded to in the beginning, I, my mother, my father, and my sister all died of cancer. And um, dad was in a hospital where there were doctors, but my mom and my sister were in home hospice. And, you know, it, 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 I didn't have a bad experience, but as I understood, as I got involved with the anti-euthanasia movement and the anti-assisted suicide movement, I realized that some people are having horrendous experiences. And, um, you know, we have to address this. That's right. And your situation was, like, I think your your father was in his 50s when he passed. So that was. Yes, he was. Okay, a long so that was a, a real long time ago. And then with your mom and your sister, that was, I think your sister's was in 2005, I think you said. Something, yeah. And mom was um, around 2000, was after, like five years later. But at that time, um, Dr. Kevorkian was going around, and he was somewhat of a media darling. He, you know, some of your listeners are probably too young to remember Dr. Kevorkian, but he had a van um, with a suicide machine in it, and he would bring people in there, and you could breathe this poison gas and and your life that way. And he killed about 130 people. Um, some of them were dying, some of them were terminally ill, but some of them were handicapped and some of them were simply depressed. Mm-hmm. And uh, he felt very strongly that if you wanted to commit suicide and needed help, you know, he would be there for you. And I, at that time, uh, my sister was sick and, you know, she thought, you know, do you want us, do you want me to do this? You know, it'd be so much easier, you know, I don't want to be a burden and, you know, the family would say, no, no, are you out of your mind? You know, we want to spend every last waking moment with you. We don't want this. 
But later when I got involved with the um, anti-assisted suicide movement, I found out that was a fairly common thing, that people who are terminally ill don't necessarily worry about the pain of it or the dignity of it. They worry about being a burden. Mm-hmm. And um, someone like Dr. Kevorkian just plays right into that. And I just thought he was outrageous, and I couldn't understand how all these really intelligent people, you know, like Barbara Walters and, you know, Dateline, could promote him. You know, they would say, well, maybe he's not the right spokesman for the cause, but he's on the right track, you know, things like that. And to me it was outrageous. Right. And he was he was causing everybody a lot of pain, too. I mean, people that were going through a situation like we were. I think I recall uh, back during that time also reading a story, I think, in People magazine or something, that there was a lady, she had two grown daughters, and she was, as you say, depressed. And she had gone through and talked to him, and he had given her, you know, the lethal injection, and she died. And her daughters afterwards had said, you know, when they did a toxicology or an, uh, um, an autopsy, she didn't have anything wrong with her. She was always saying, you know, I've got something wrong with me, I'm dying, I've got this, and, you know, she was a hypochondriac. But in reality, she had nothing wrong with her other than being a hypochondriac. And her daughters said it was very sad, but they felt relieved now because she spent so much time talking about it all the time that, you know, she's well, she, you know she's gone now, so you know she doesn't have to be in pain. Not that she was in any physical pain, but it's what you're saying. They kind of sensationalized it, you know, yes. in the media yes. that, that you know this is okay. Um, I think they came out with a movie at one point that said they shoot horses, don't they? Right, that was one. But there's been so many of those, Marshall, like. Um, Yesterday in the front page of the New York Times, they were even talking about a new book about death, and it's supposed to be really funny. It's about two women, one who helps the other one die. It's just very prevalent. And there's a movie, um, Million Dollar Baby, the Clint Eastwood movie. Back up this picture. And um, more recently there was a movie called Me Before You about um, a really gorgeous young man who got in some kind of accident and landed up in a wheelchair and, you know, ended his life, even though he was cute and handsome and rich and, you know, the only thing wrong with him was he was handicapped. And that kind of thinking is is just really difficult for the handicapped people and people with disabilities. And when I got involved with this movement, I met a group called uh, the Not Dead Yet People, and they have a cute name, and they've got a great attitude, and a lot of these people are severely handicapped, and what's going on in the nursing homes and with euthanasia and all that really frightens them, because, you know, if somebody terminally ill's life isn't worth living, then why is their life worth living? And, you know, it, it starts with the terminally ill, and then it's it, if we keep allowing it as a society, it will go on to to more people, you know, that aren't terminally ill, they're just depressed even. That's what's going on in Europe. In certain parts of Europe, it's legal for a young person, like with schizophrenia or manic depression, um, to take an assisted suicide through a doctor. 
Right. And to me, it, it's just nuts because, you know, these people have their whole life ahead of them. There's medications. There's all kinds of help for them. And, you know, to offer them suicide at that early stage, I I just don't get it. I really don't. Well, there was um, a young girl, teenager, recently that, I say recently in the past year, that she was depressed and she wanted to die because she had been sexually molested. And instead of having a counselor work with her and let her know that she's valuable and that what was done to her, that she's not responsible for it, and lock up or eliminate the people that did that to her, you know, punish them for their crime, she wound up paying the ultimate price, and and she just didn't want to live anymore. She was so depressed about what had happened to her life that she just didn't want to live. And for people to play into that because it's saving them money, it gets rid of somebody else, you know, we have this population increase, and and people are thinking they're just not worthy of living. And as in the hospice criteria now someone who who is incontinent who can't dress themselves who can't feed themselves they become a burden and those things can qualify you to become a hospice patient and for the people that think oh well you know hospice is not going to do any harm are you kidding me they are murdering people with the drugs and they they die from dehydration which I, i don't know if if I go during the day and I don't drink enough water and I've, you know, worked outside, cut grass and things, in the middle of the night I can wake up with Charlie horse and, I mean, it hurts and I can't hardly get out of bed, you know, to work it out. That's what our loved ones feel when there's no moisture in their body, when they can't drink because you had them so drugged. They are in pain because there is no moisture in their body. They're dehydrating. They give them morphine so that they don't feel the pain of that, but they still do. And then they give them more psychotic drugs if they cry out, and then they give them more morphine. And this is a situation that they created the drugging, the dehydration, the starvation, the pain that someone feels from being dehydrated and starved, you create that pain, and then you're given a more pain medicine. It's a vicious cycle. It's a painful death. There is nothing peaceful about someone dying like that, nothing. It's a lie. my, my experience with my sister and my mom, they were desperately ill, and they had terminal cancer, and these drugs, um, morphine, fentanyl, hydrocodone, and all that, they're very good for that because um, the, they're very addictive drugs. You know, we have this huge op- opiate epidemic right now. But when used in terminally ill, the person's not going to live long enough to become a drug addict. So it, it can relieve their pain. But the re- abuse of it is not right. You know, right. I mean, under the right circumstances, these drugs are really, really helpful. Because if you're in a lot of pain and you take morphine, it just brings you up to normal. You're not going to get a euphoria. You're not going to get mm-hmm. a high like a drug addict. You're just going to be brought back up to normal. And that's a beautiful thing if, because otherwise they would be in a lot of pain. But they, but we, we, we mustn't abuse them. You know, we mustn't use them like what you described happened to your mom, you know. That's, right. That's well, and outrageous. they do give, 
and as Ron Panzer, you know, has told me, because we've talked about this quite a bit, and Michelle um, Dewars, that you give a small amount so that it just gives them a little bit of release so that they're not, right. you know, in that enormous pain. But they can still talk to their families. And, you know, if they start getting in more pain and they get just a little bit more, you just give them a little bit more. You don't give them large doses. And if they're asleep, there is no need to come in there and to inject them with morphine. There's no reason to give them Ativan or Haldol or Seroquel if, you know, if they're not super anxious. And if they are anxious, show them pictures, talk to them, sing, you know, read something to them, sing a song. There are other ways to keep someone from being anxious without giving them a drug. You know, naturally you can do that. So I'm not saying in, in your parents' case and your sister's that they need something to cut that pain, but you give right. them a little bit, and you only give it when they need it. And and with that, so tell me what they told you. This is important for people to know. I'd never heard this. What they told you before they gave them their first dose of morphine. Well, morphine is it's a very old drug. It was used in the Civil War and it's made from poppies. You know, so it's it's a natural substance. But some people are allergic to it. And when you get into the advanced cancers like what my sister and my mother had, you know, when it, and my dad had lung cancer, the first dose can be fatal because you don't know if the person's allergic to it and you don't know, um, and it depresses their respiration. You know, like it slows down their breathing, it slows down all their bodily systems. So you have to be really careful, and usually they give them, they, we were doing this ourselves, my sister's husband and I, and they gave us this little squirter, and we were supposed to squirt her in her mouth. And my uh, sister's husband was terrified of doing it because when his mother had cancer, um, they squirted in her mouth and she died in the first dose. So, I mean, oh, yeah. he had a lot of problems with it, you know, so I ended up doing it and luckily it was fine and, you know, the dosage was right. But what I'm saying is these things are really tricky and when you get into fentanyl, that's like a hundred times more powerful than morphine and there's actually a drug called carfentanil that's 10,000 more times more than morphine so just a little tiny bit you know that this is part of the reason we have so many people dying of overdoses i'm talking about a few grains like think grains of salt just a little bit too much right be an overdose so you have to be really careful with these drugs but that and and i'm not saying that you know people that are doing drugs should die Please don't think that I'm, I said that. No. But when when someone is an opioid addict and they go looking for the drugs and they get the drugs, whatever it is and however they get it, they are taking that because they want a high. And I'm right. You know, I mean, whether you drink or smoke or whatever you do to get your high, you know, I walk out in the garden and get high because of my plant. You know, looking at plants, not because I'm smoking anything. But when you're Doing that, you are you are actively seeking that high, and you're making a conscious choice to go do heroin or whatever the drug right. is. For our people, our loved ones who were in the hospice setting, they didn't go looking for a high. They are given these drugs, which they, hospice staff, know is going to kill them, and that is the intent. 
when you give that to someone and they're asleep and you come in and you give them more and you give them more and you give them more, they know what they're doing. They are killing the person. It was premeditated, slow murder. And it's apparently condoned because nobody's going to trial for it and nobody's been arrested for it except for, you know, Bradley Harris and um, Hustle in um, Cincinnati, Ohio. But for the most part, it's just, you know, it's okay to kill the elderly because they're costing money. And that's just wrong. Well, and people don't I know think, this. It's happening. I think when we see this um, assisted suicide, a friend of mine, in fact, today sent me this thing called Suicide Pods. They look like coffins except more high-tech, and you can go in there and breathe uh-huh. gas, and they're being, you know, like, what? What are we doing? Germany. So, like, yeah, and yeah. I think I think like it's not so much, you know, like the terminally ill that will say like, you know, it's more dignified, you know, to commit suicide. I don't have to go through helplessness and all that. But I think when you, you're doing this, what does it make you, what does it make us as a society? I mean, it's not just about the terminally ill. It's also about the people taking care of us, taking care of them and the, and the family and everything. What does it make you if you go along with this? What, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's what we have to look at as healers or do we want them to become killers? You know, I mean, that's a real question to me. Like, what is this turning us into? You know, well, we've been down this road before, too, in totalitarian states, you know. Life is precious. Yeah. All life is precious. And, you know, we have become a society where we believe it's okay to kill the baby in the womb or after the baby is born, then we can set it aside on a table, keep it comfortable, while the doctor and the mother discuss what they want to do with this baby, this child, this thing. You know, I mean, it's not even like a, a life. And I'm like, what do you mean you're going to, you know, a, a baby didn't die during the abortion, they survived it, and now you're going to try to decide what you want to do with it? I mean, that's what Governor Northam of Virginia says, then we'll decide what we're going to do. So we don't value the life of an infant. We don't value the life of the elderly or the disabled or, you know, the the person with dementia. How is it that that anybody believes it's okay? Well, does that just mean that young, productive, healthy people have the right to life? You know, I mean, there comes a must. Yeah, but that's, um, it reminds me of something I heard once. I went to this anti-euthanasia convention, and one person said, I'll never forget this, when you do euthanasia, you actually kill the person twice. The first time is when you decide their life isn't worth living. You know, they're old, they're sick, they're what, they're a deformed baby or whatever. And the second time is when you actually kill them. And I thought to myself, wow. And, like, the people in the Not Dead Yet group and all that, they're saying, like, when people look at them and say, if I were you, I'd commit suicide and I couldn't live like that. that that's so hateful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who are you to say that, that you know, or to do that? Well, how did we world? Right, and how did we get there? How, how did we get to the point that we think that life doesn't matter? That you know, well, I think I, it I have, happens gradually. Well, I, I, I'm not there, and I don't know 
like you said, you know, what is it? What is the age group? Are we going to say, you know, obviously a child, a four- or five-year-old needs, you know, a parent, but what are we going to say that it's okay for people to live if you're a year old until you're 55 or you're 60? I mean, what's the sweet spot, you know, after you're 40 or after um, you're 50 or you're over the hill? Well, there's some uh, medical ethics ethics people, one of them worked for the last administration, Raleigh Manual, and they believe that um, once you're past 70, you shouldn't have any medical care whatsoever. You know, I mean, that's already because you're too much of a waste on the system. So your last, the person's last illness is usually the biggest expense, medical expense they incur. I think in my research, I think it was like 150,000 average or up. You know, so, like, if you don't go through the last illness with the person, if you don't try to treat their, treat their cancer or whatever, just offer them assisted suicide right away, you're saving that much per per person. So it tends to be, you know, like insurance companies and that and government health care, you know, they call a lot of the shots because they're the ones paying the bills. But how is it that those, because I look around at the people that are kind of pushing this, that, you know, in the Hemlock Society and those that, you know, believe that it's okay to eliminate the elderly, and I look at some of those people that have these crazy ideas, and they're old. I mean, they're much older than I am, and, I'm you know, I'm looking at Bill Gates and, you know, his, outlook on life and what he thinks and and i'm looking at the you people you're already old and so what is going to save you why is it that you are going to be above that and everybody's going to get old and do we say that there's a certain cutoff point that you know like um Edward G. Robinson in Soylent Green and i'm glad you put that in there because that movie haunts me but right. you know, he he decides. I just don't want to deal with this anymore. And you know, he goes peacefully. Could have been like you know one of these suicide pods, because I mean it did appear to be peaceful. But then it's a movie. It, you know, people just decide. I just don't want to live anymore. Is there a cutoff well, point? Well, you know, when you're seventy, you have to go to a place and have it done. It's interesting that you know you say that because like with Dr. Kevorkian, he lived to be eighty-three. And he died of liver cancer, and he wanted everything possible done. He didn't do an assisted suicide. So you wonder, like, all these people that are deciding everything, when it's their turn, what do they do for themselves and their families, you know? Well, exactly. It's like like good for other people, like little people, but it's not, you know, it's their turn. It's a different story. Well, it's kind of like, you know, getting your hair washed and and, um, blow-dried when the salon is shut down. It's okay Um, for me, but not for anybody else. I would say that that when when my mom and my sister were in hospice, we were at home, and it was kind of loose. You know, we were watching television and, you know, standing, you know, being together, and it, you know, took a couple months in both cases. And um, I think that good things can happen during that period. It's very intense. It's something you'll never forget. It's pro- it was probably the most one of the most intense experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, 
And I just wanted to say to people, like, if you feel inadequate, sometimes you don't have to say anything, just hold their hand and just the idea that somebody's there and and you're not going to leave. I mean, you feel like you can't find the right words. And by intense, I mean, if it's, if it's a beautiful death and if it's done right, a lot of wonderful things can happen. Like my sister and my mom both went over the past a lot. They talked about happy times. They, they were worried about their legacy, like what they were leaving behind. And they talked to the ministers about that kind of thing. Um, so it can be a, like a, a really beautiful process. And a lot of people worry about losing dignity um, and my sister did become delirious. She got terminal restlessness. That's um, She got up and she said, I have to go to work. I'm not really sick and things like that. And they have drugs for that. They give them sedatives and it'll go away. But I don't think the, the loss of dignity thing isn't what people think. I mean, right up to the end, they're still themselves. They're still talking to you. You're 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 still giving them love. So if it's right, it can be a really beautiful thing is what I'm saying. You well, know, it's it, hard to understand that, but it can be. Well, but I agree because you were able to relive with your mom. She, you know, she talked about, you know, when you and your sister were children and, you know, when she right. first met your dad. And, you know, those were things that you got to say because she knew that her time was coming near and she wanted to right. talk about it. What I'm saying in the situation with with my mom and with all right. of these other people that I've you know had on the show, they didn't get those last few months, days, weeks, hours because it was all stolen from them. Because you don't know when it's somebody's time to go. You can't possibly predict that. And these people were not terminal. My mom was not terminal. She had congestive heart failure. She was not terminal. And all of that was taken away from her and from her family. We didn't get right. the opportunity to talk about the good old days and, you know, what, do, Mom, what do you want us to remember about you and, you know, what are the important things in your life that, you know, that if you haven't told us that you want to tell us or you didn't get to say that last, I love you, you know, you are my world, you know, and how much you mean to me. Those things are stolen from people as soon as they start giving the high drugs. And and I feel so bad for the people who have loved ones that are in the nursing homes because they can't even get in to talk to them. And there are people that are dying right and left, and they've been in there for months and have not seen their family. And they think. And if you've got dementia, you think you've been abandoned, right? How can you possibly well, that's, understand? That's right. And you did miss out, Marcia. You really did because I did. You did. Like, my sister wanted me to read her the resurrection story. And I must have read that, like, 20 times. And I read it, and she died um, the last time I read it. And my mom, um, you know, they died, they, they, their personality doesn't change. And, you you know, what's important to them when they're alive is the same as when they're dying. And, and it, it brings you incredibly close. You know, mm-hmm. it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet, but it can be a beautiful experience. I had a friend, um, she's a doctor, 
And uh, she and her sister gave her mother, who died of breast cancer, a bath. And she told me it was one of the most spiritual experiences of her life. It was like they were preparing her. So you got deprived of that. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, you and other people that have had that experience need to speak out. Because it's wrong for you and it's wrong for the person who died. Right. It's wrong. And it's and it's wrong for everybody else who's going to come afterwards, and it's going to be done to them. And it's like it's a, a nightmare you can never wake up from because you saw it, you knew it was happening, you were in shock, you couldn't stop it. And in our case, we tried to stop it, but we just weren't smart enough. They They outsmarted us. And we listen to their lies, and that's what's happening. People listen to hospice lies because they think that they're compassionate and that they won't do any harm to the person. You know, there's a HIPAA law. Well, HIPAA law doesn't mean squat. And it's not about, you know, protecting the patient. That's not what it's about anymore. It's about a money-making situation and it's about getting people off of medicare and medicaid because they're costing too much money and in some cases their family members don't want to be bothered with them anymore they want the inheritance or they don't want the trouble and i've had so many people on the show that come on and and it's their sibling or it's their their mother that wants their father dead it's horrible Part of the problem in our country is you have to go through your estate before the government will help you. So, like, if somebody gets placed in a nursing home to the tune of, say, five to 7000 a month, they'll quickly go through a middle-class estate, and there's no inheritance then for the children. So you see a lot of abuse because they would rather the person died with the 500000 or whatever mm-hmm. rather than go right. through it, you know, with, with a, longer, a longer process. Or if there's you know. no money, it, you know, if someone doesn't have any money, they don't have a house, or they do, and you've expended those resources, and you're in the nursing home, then you're not going to get that five, six thousand a, a month. Right. Medicare and Medicaid is going to pick in, and you're only going to get what they're going to pay, and you know, then you're going to come to the family, and you know, I, I face it, most people can't afford five, six thousand dollars a month. It, they just can't. That's right. And, That's right. You know, it, it's only the wealthy can afford that. But even there are wealthy people that have been in this situation that have been euthanized. And their they're siblings and spouses well, yeah, knew about it. Bigger, bigger estate to fight over. <laughs> right. Because there's, some, there's must- something to fight. It deprives the person who's dying, though, of their chance to, oh, they'll want to do something like, like my sister was into nature, and, oh, my gosh, toward the end, she just, we would wrap her up in her wheelchair and take her outside, and she just wanted to see the flowers one last time or or the trees, you know, or a squirrel, or she wanted to see one friend one last time, and that person was traveling to see her. You know, things like that. You got deprived of that. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just makes me so damn mad when people say, like, um, you know, there's no dignity with death and, it, you know, let's just get it over with and, you know, this is painless. You know, that's... But it's not painless. No. It, it, euthanasia is not painless. 
It is not. I mean, just, you know, what I was telling you about this, the dehydration that a person's going to go through, it, you know, uh, I've had to have my pets, you know, put down in the past, which is, is horrible, and I can relive that and be sick about it, but it's quick. It's, you know, it's not long drawn out, you know, like three, five, you know, 10, 15 days that people are going through while they slowly execute your loved one. And and there are cases where people have said, get me out of here, they're killing me. They're gonna, they know it and they're anxious because they know they're going to be killed and then they give them Seroquel and Haldol with their morphine because the person knows that that's what you're doing to them and they physically hold them down as they did Miss Whitney and, you know, give them the drugs and the person knows this is what you're doing to me. I, I can't imagine the fear that they would feel. Uh, I, and they just, don't they don't get a chance to make any kind of reconciliations and, you know, do the things that they want to do and need to do, feel they need spiritually or, you know, or things they want to communicate. You know, like your mother might have wanted to communicate something to you as her daughter. Mm-hmm. Correct. You know, and... You know, like you say, instead she was put in this horrible situation. True, and there are so many things that I would like to communicate to those nurses, but <laughs> the law won't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's it's a good thing we're several several states away, and I I don't you know go back in that area again because it's just it's just. You know, it's just too hard. It's too hard. But but there are other people who experience this, you know, on a, you know, all the people with the COVID and with the nursing homes and people that there is a, um, I think I mentioned it to you, we have a Facebook group called Murdered by Hospice that has a lot of members and they have gone through it and they're very helpful to other people that may be also going through it or have lost a loved one and are hurting. It's a a, a very very good support group. And, and how how do you propose like to change things so it doesn't happen to other people? Well, there is a um, a pachetta, which is um, palliative hospice training act that they have been trying to pass. And that's come up for the past three years, and we keep fighting against it because what it is is to create more hospice facilities to kill people. The reason is because of the baby boomers are coming up now, and they need more hospices to put them in. And hospice has become a huge business, money-making business, as you know, I told you with Bradley Harris, a CEO had no medical background, but he was making all this money and actually said, you know, find me somebody to make them go bye-bye, and they're staying around too long. So there is that bill. There are two more bills that they've put in as placeholders for uh, hospice, and it's one's just called a hospice act. But the legislatively, we need to have people that understand the legislation and can put the words into the bills so that they have to give. CMS is supposed to oversee this, and the OIG report comes out, Office Inspector General, and it has 
problems with the current hospice and the way that people are treated, but there are no teeth to bang them on the head and to say, you know, we're going to put you out of business if you don't do this, this, and this. And the enrollment, the criteria to enroll someone has gotten so lax, as I said earlier, if you're incontinent or if you go to the hospital three or four times in six months, you can qualify to meet the criteria to go into hospice. That needs to change. That legislatively, that needs to change. It should go back to the point that a person is enrolled because they cannot be treated for a disease, a terminal disease. They are actively dying. They cannot Mm -hmm. be treated. That is the only reason that hospice should exist, period. Well, I thought that was true. I thought you could enroll in hospice for six months, and then if you didn't die, you could get out of it. No, huh? Well, you can, but you think hospice is going to let you out? My mom, we were going to get my mom out once I found out what was going on, and Mm -hmm. they were not going, they arrived at their house and tricked them into going into the hospice respite care for my dad to get respite. So hospice is not going to let you come in and then graduate and get out because then it's going to look like to them they're going to be penalized because then obviously you weren't dying and you didn't need to go in the first time and now you've wasted all this money on a patient that really shouldn't have been in there. So you misdiagnose the person in the first place. It's a penalty. So Are these... Yeah, are these- are these state laws or national laws, or how does this work? It's government-wide in the United States. It's oh. CMS is the overseer of it. But Medicare and Medicaid pays for that. There's a, um, a cap that they will pay annually per person, and it's an aggregate. So if you have 10 people, the cap now is almost at 30000 this year. If you have 10 people in there, and each one of them could get 30000 but one of them only uses maybe 15000 and somebody else uses 45000 and somebody else only uses only lives you know less than a month and they only get 2000 it all averages out as long as the number of patients times that 29978 times the number of patients per that year does is not exceeded then that facility will get that money so okay. yeah, but it should only be if you're actively dying. If you're not actively dying, you shouldn't enroll in hospice and then get out of hospice. And they don't tell you; they'll tell you anything that they think you want to hear to enroll you in. And that's um, what the book "Killing for Profit: The Dark Side of Hospice" that Michelle Young Doers wrote. She was in the hospice, and they did have a quota. And she can point, she, in her story, she points out what actually does happen and why it is that they want to enroll you from the hospital if you've gone, you know, three, four times in six months. Because the hospital then is penalized because you keep coming back for, you know, COPD or congestive heart failure, broken bones, because you're not supposed to be coming back to the hospital multiple times. It costs too much money. costs too much. So if you so you're in hospice and once you're in it's hard to get out that's what you're saying and then they don't do any any active treatment for what's wrong with you it's just strictly comfort care right correct well you can get palliative care along with treatment but 
the reality is hospice, once you get in there, you're going to go out in a box. They're not going to let you graduate and get out of hospice. That's not what happens. People go in, and when it becomes their time that's determined mostly by the staff, then that is when those people go. Cause the, terrible. Well, it is. It's a crime. It is one of the biggest crimes of our country. And, you know, we have all of this, you know, rioting and everything going on. And I'm like, the reality, when you step back and you look at those people who have lost loved ones to being murdered by euthanasia, we have more of a reason to be rioting and to be protesting but it unfortunately it's difficult to get people to rally together to make a difference to you know because we've many of us have written legislative you know we've contacted you know governors president of the united states the vice president of the united states you know talk shows um you know media fox nbc cbs and people don't want to talk about it and they don't want to hear about it but it is government backed because the government is in charge of Medicare and Medicaid and it's saving them money by eliminating these people that are costing more money to treat them with dialysis, medication, in and out of the hospital because of broken bones. I mean, an older person costs more money than a younger person typically. Right. Um, Except for those of us who are afraid now to go to the hospital and don't want to be on any kind of medication because we're terrified, we know too much, and that we are concerned that we would be next on the hit list. People well, shouldn't have to live in fear. No, no, not at all. You know, and people should all. know what's going on so they know how to protect themselves and their loved ones. And that is the reason for the show, and that's the reason for. Um, you know, the euthanasia prevention, uh, you know, choice is an illusion, uh, you know, hospicepatients.org, halovoice.org, life legal defense. Uh, you know, Paul, Dr. Paul Byrne talks about um, organ harvesting. I mean, there are so many things out there, but people just don't know where to find them. And that's what we try to do is to give you those different avenues to find the information because it's out there and we just kind of try to point people in the right direction to get the information before you make the decision. The problem is a lot of people have to make a lot of decisions without any knowledge. Correct. And they don't know know where to look. And if you don't know that it's an issue, you don't know until you're faced with it and all of a sudden you go, I think I just saw my you know, my loved one be murdered. And then you start seeking and looking to say, you know, did this really just happen? Because you don't know. And the people you talk to are going to say, oh, you're just grieving. You're just trying to find somebody to blame. No, no, I know what I saw. And the sad thing is most of us blame ourselves for not being wise enough to stop it from happening. We were in over our head, we didn't have the information that we do today, and that's why we talk and tell our stories. Well, I 
I hope that anyone who's had that experience wouldn't be too hard on themselves because when someone in your family is dying, you're immediately thrust into an emergency situation. You have to make a lot of decisions and, you know, you might not have enough knowledge to do it. You just do the best you can and that's true. You know, at the time, you, that was your level of awareness. You know? Right. You're right. Right. You're right. Right. And so I think that there are a lot of people that believe that their loved one died peacefully because that's what somebody told them. And right. the sad thing is, chances are that's not true. But after it's happened, then there's no point in you telling somebody, you know what, I think your person was murdered because at that point, if they don't know that and they don't believe that and they don't suspect that, there's no point in telling them that. It, it just would be hurtful. And, you know, I'm sure my dad would have told us that my sister and I not gotten there, my dad would have said that your mother died peacefully in her sleep because he didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And, you know, because my sister and I were there, we knew something was deadly wrong. Wow. So, so your book, uh, you, you've got, you know, one minute. Um, talk to me about your novel that you've got out there, Walk Me to well, Midnight. Well, it was, again, I was not very fond of Dr. Kevorkian, so he's kind of a um, a character in the story, and I figured he's the perfect serial murderer, and it's, it kind of goes along like that, you know. It was okay. It was very, very nice of Image Magazine and my publisher to publish his stuff because it's, it's just really hard to get the message out there. And I'm glad you're doing what you're doing, Marcia. Well, thank you, thank you. And I'm glad you wrote the story mute because I've read it many, many times, not you out loud to people. Me. We writers but, live for someone like that, <laughs> you know, that really, you know, where your work really touches someone. That's just a wonderful thing. Well, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Um, now, thank is you. your book... Is your book on Amazon, Your Walk to Midnight? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, walk Me yeah, to walk. Midnight. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I told Jane she's got the perfect name, and it's her, it's really her name. Her name really is Jane St. Clair, but she's got that's the perfect name. author's <laughs> name. <laughs> well, it's a nice name. I always liked it. That's a cool well, name. Thank you, so. Marsha. We have run out of time. Thank you so much for coming on tonight and letting me read your story. And for all the listeners, thank you for listening. And I hope I didn't um, drive anybody crazy. So, all right, and uh, we'll be back. Thank you so much. Good night to everyone. Good night, Jane. Good night. Good night. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Who'd like another slice of free turkey? I'd love a slice of free turkey. White meat, please. Where'd you get this delicious free turkey? BJ's Wholesale Club. It's a free butterball turkey. Free drumstick, anyone? I want a wing. Are the wings free? The whole turkey is free. Get a free butterball at BJ's Wholesale Club when you spend $150 in one transaction between November 1st and 9th. Then your free coupon will appear in the BJ's Digital Coupon Gallery beginning November 11th. Go to BJ's.com slash free turkey for offer terms. Not a member? Join today. BJ's. Absurdly simple savings.